Blessed Post Meridian, everybody. <laughs> You're going to make it work. <laughs> if you got your Bibles, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. For those of you who want to follow along with your notes, there's notes in the back. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes. Book right after Proverbs, right before Song of Solomon, and all the rest of the prophets. All right, starting in chapter one. When you get there, let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, we thank you and we praise you for being God and just for allowing us to come before you, God, just to even thank upon you. It's a blessing from you, Father God. Help us to never take you for granted. But give us insight, give us understanding, God. Allow us to be instructed out of your word, God. Truly speak truth into our hearts, Father God. And give us the grace, the power to be able to live it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all. We're starting our second book. We completed the book of Proverbs. Made it all the way through that long journey. And now here we meet the book of Ecclesiastes. And... This book is once again as a part of what we were referred to as the poetic parts of scripture. When we look at our Old Testament, it's broken down into three basic parts. Well, four, five. You got the first five books, which is the Torah, the law. Then after that, we got the historical writings that gives us the basic history of the, the nation of Israel. Then we, where we are now in the poetic books are the writings some people refer to refer to them and then into the prophets that's the basic breakdown of our old testament and they're collected in our book in those basic genres and a little bit after we go through we'll show you a switch the difference between our canon and the hebrew canon it's not something we're going to delve into today but we meet here the next book now we're coming out of proverbs proverbs the chief thing was wisdom in the fear of the lord that the fear of god is wisdom and it gave us this beautiful and blessed picture of life, of all the blessings and all the things that can be gained if we seek and pursue wisdom. And in that book, we saw Christ depicted as the epitome of wisdom, that he is the one that existed with God from the foundation of creation. He is this great wisdom that guides us and instructs us. And if we walk with him, we hear his voice speaking throughout the whole entire book. And as we come here into the book of Ecclesiastes, the tone changes a little bit. But these books are connected because there's one word that connects them, and that's that word wisdom. Now, the the picture of wisdom here is depicted a slight big difference. And here we see wisdom being utilized as a means to understand life. That's how we're going to meet wisdom in this book. In the last book, wisdom was something depicted that we seek and pursue after that gives us the right way to live throughout life. But here we see it utilized as something as a means to understanding life. Now, a couple of parts here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Those of you who got the notes. Now, you might see this funny little head on your notes. And on the notes, it, it, it terms Kohelet. That's a Hebrew term for the book of Ecclesiastes. I like the way that sounds. I like saying that word. 
So that's why I went with <laughs> with that one, to be honest. But that's the Hebrew title of the book, Kohelet. And you ask the question, where do we get our title Ecclesiastes from? Like, what, what, how do we title the book? Or where does the title of the book come from? And we meet it here in verse 1. So you got your Bibles, we Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. In verse 1, it's the superscript of the book. Or it's the title, the heading of the book. And it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So this is the title. So what we're about to read are the words of the sayings, the utterings of a preacher. That's what it says in the King James. Some of yours may say a teacher if you got some of the newer versions. And that word preacher, teacher there is the word Kohelet. And the Greek version of the Old Testament is translated as Ecclesiastes. Ecclesia. The word means one who comes together. That's all the word means. It's the same word used in the New Testament of a church. So this person, Kohelet, the word means a gatherer, one who assembles, one who pulls things together. And it's somewhat of a vague term because the question becomes, who is this Kohelet? What is it that he's gathering? What is it that he's collecting? And a lot of people are going to tell you that he collects an assembly of people, a group he's about to teach, he's about to instruct. So that's how they get teacher or preacher out of it. But the basic word there is Kohelet that we meet here. And we learn a couple of things about this Kohelet. That he's the son of David and he's king in Jerusalem. So who that sound like to y'all? Sounds like Solomon. Kohelet, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. And for the vast majority of the history of this book, everybody says Solomon. Now, some of y'all got them new Bibles and you might see notes in your book and they'll tell you that Solomon didn't write it. They don't believe Solomon wrote it. And the reasons that they say so is a whole bunch of technical things. But we're supposed to be skeptical of everything but what? Anybody remember? Everything but the Bible. We're skeptical of everything but the Bible. So we question everything but the Bible itself. And what we see here is this presentation. And as we go through it, I want you to wrestle with it and try to glean and understand who is this Kohelet? Who is this preacher? We learn a couple of things. He's the son of David and he's king in Jerusalem. Y'all got that. You got to remember that. He's the son of David and he's king in Jerusalem. And as we go through it and we enter in, we're going to try to identify who this Kohelet is. Now, the basic structure of the book before we go and get into it, because this is key to understanding it. The book is basically the way we're going to attack it is broken up into three parts. We got the prologue or the introduction of the book from here, verse one down to verse 11. This is the prologue. And it's a third person prologue. He's referring to the Kohelet as somebody that he's observing. Then beginning in verse 12, the Kohelet himself began to speak. And the vast majority of the language from verse 12 of chapter 1 all the way to verse 7 of chapter 12 is a first person narrative. And I look at it, I read it like a journal. And it gives us this journey that this Kohelet goes on. And at the end of the book is another third person closing, an epilogue where he summarized the whole thing. These are the three basic parts to this book. So you got a prologue, an opening, 
Then you got the basic, the meat of the story. Then it ends with an epilogue where he go back and recounts and views the whole thing. Now, ask your question. How many of you, I know we live in modern day America, so we all done this, and watch the movie or TV show where the introduction where you meet the TV show and it's in the, a high point of action. It's like going on and you see in the car chase going on and you might see the star of the TV show and he got arrested or he, you see a gunshot and it go black and you're like, hold up, how the show start like this? And then the very next scene, it might be say six months earlier. And the end at that high point, like what happened? Did he die? Did he die? Did he go to jail? And, and it, and it just stops and it starts telling the whole story over again. And it builds back up to that point. When we read this book, this is what we're going to be introduced to. It starts at the end and it gives us the, the, the meat of it. And we get right into the action at the beginning. Then it starts over. And so let's get into it. The prologue here, starting in verse two. Chapter 1, verse 2 said, Vanity of vanity, said the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? This is the conclusion of the book. And he jumps right into it. Vanity of vanity, said the preacher. All is vanity. And here we meet with the part that allows this book to be debated. And a lot of people think, like, hold up, like, this don't supposed to be in the Bible. Because this dude just told us all, everything is vanity. If you got some of the new Bibles, it said meaningless or nothingness. And in this opening here, we meet a couple of key terms that we need to understand before we get to it. The first of it is this word vanity. What in the world does this word vanity mean? Let me get y'all involved a little bit. What do you think when you hear vanity? Meaningless. What else we got? Nothing meaningless, nothing, worthless. What else we got when you hear vanity? Like, like a vapor? Yeah, like arrogance. Looking at yourself all day, taking selfies. <laughs> that's, that's all we got? And that's a pretty good range of it. The very word here that's, as we present it with is the Hebrew word hebel. I got it at the end of your notes. It's the word hebel. And it has a range of meanings in the Bible. And y'all pretty much hit on the vast majority of them. Most of it is nothingness, meaningless, pointless, something that is fleeting or something that fades away. And it gives the picture of, as he says, smoke or, or, or vapor. And the idea of it, the concrete idea behind it, is something that appears to be able to be grasped. But when you attempt to grab it, it disappears. Like a cloud or like entering into fog. And that's the idea of vanity here. And he throws it with this full range of meaning. And I want to keep the full range of meaning as we go through it. And not corner ourselves into one of those ideas. Because it thwarts the way that we read the book. So we think when we meet the word hebel, the word vanity throughout the rest of the book, this is the dominant word of the book. I think it shows up some 30 sometimes just in this one book, which is only 12 chapters, which is amazing. I think it's only like 50 sometimes in the whole Old Testament. So a good vast majority of the word, use of the word is found in this book. 
And it has this full range of meaning. And in this opening declaration, we meet with the vast of it. And this, the way that it's presented here, vanities of vanity, it's a superlative. It's a way of amplifying something to its full meaning. We see it when we say that Jesus is the king of kings. What y'all think that means? That he's the highest, the greatest king, ain't no other king like him. He's the Lord of lords. And it's the way this is a Hebrew uses where they double something to amplify his meaning. So when he said vanity of vanities, what he's saying, out of all the vain things on this earth, life is it. This is the most vain thing that exists. Everything. is fleeting. It's deceitful. It's empty. It's meaningless. It has no point to it. Now that don't seem like it's supposed to be in the Bible. Like God supposed to be. We all got a purpose in life. And that's our whole thing. Bill Brighton said his own thing. You got a meaning in life. And what he didn't start it off with is everything is meaningless. All of it. There is nothing. It's fleeting. It's fading away. And it is something that cannot be grasped, cannot be held on to. Then he goes on and he gives us this question that we're going to sit with it. And it's a rhetorical question, but it's a key question for us to keep in mind in verse 3. It said, what profit hath the man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? This is the question that we're going to ask. So what profit? That word profit there is another one of our key terms that we need to understand and keep in mind. It's the idea of something that enriches or something that you take away as a means of enrichment. It's a blessing, an abundance. What you get out of it. What's the benefit of it? How is it that this thing pays you? And the question is, what profit hath the man of all his labor that he take it under the sun? So out of everything man do, out of all the work that man has, that word labor is a key word here, it's the word toil, the work, the exhaustion, the frustration of going through the grind over and over again. It's like, what's the point? Out of everything that we give ourselves to, out of everything that we devote ourselves to, all our energy, all our frustration, the exhaustion that we go through in life, stressing ourselves out to do a job, to do a task, to get something done. He's saying, what's the point? What is the benefit? What do you gain? Is there a return? And here it's just stated in a rhetorical negative, as in, there is no. And it's the same type of question Jesus asked when we meet him in the gospel. But he said in a little more profound way that don't hit us as hard when he says that what can a man gain? I can't, can a man gain the whole world and lose his soul? Said so by what is a man advantage if he gained the whole world? And his idea is if you get everything there is to be gotten on earth, how did you profit? What did you truly get? And this is the question that we're going to try to answer here. And all the activities that we can give ourselves to, all the work, all the toil, all the things that we can practice in life, what is it that we can truly gain from it? How is it that we can truly be benefited from everything that we can do? And this is something that we need to sit with and wrestle with. How many of you, don't raise your hand out loud, raise it in your heart, have ever thought about, like, what's the purpose of my and you're thinking about your work, your job, and, and all the things. And you felt like it, it, it was just like no point to it. It get to a point of frustration like, what? why am I even doing this? And it's like something 
of meaning and something of longing for, for something of significance that dwells inside of our heart. And we seem to be dissatisfied with it with everything that we do. Like, I got this job, I keep going. Am I making an impact? Am I, you're looking for some significance. You're looking for something to tell you that your efforts are worth it. And far too often you'll meet with, I'm just collecting a check. <laughs> Go and our bills get paid. And that's the true value that we, most time that we rest with. And the question that he's asking, even if that be the case, is it worth it? Is that real profit? Is just collecting the check and paying bills worth the energy, the effort, the exhaustion, the strain that you put on your body? Is it worth it? And here we're confronted with an idea that puts us in our true humanity and our understanding of what's our purpose and what's our existence on this planet. And this is the thing that he's wrestling with. And we meet a key phrase in this verse. A lot of the key things we meet right up here up front. And that's the phrase, under the sun. Now this exact phrase, worded in this exact way, only occurs in this book. You don't meet it anywhere else. And basically, it is how it sounds. It's beneath the sun. And it's an idiomatic way of saying, on this planet. In this life. On earth. I think he switches one time and he says under heaven, which is a more common phrase. But the idea is on this planet. So if everything we do on this planet was the profit. Of everything that's being taken, that everything that takes place, everything that's being done on this earth was the profit. Is there anything worthwhile? That's the question that we're going to try to understand and that we're going to try to answer. And he gives us in this high point, we meet him and he said, it's meaningless. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I think it is, after the fall of Adam and Eve, God began to put down his curses and God began to, to bring judgment. And the judgment that God brought to Adam, anybody remember? See, we've been reading it, Bob. Huh? You say you got to work hard and what? By the sweat of your brow. That that right now, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 basically it. And the idea, Genesis chapter three, I think it's fifteen. You can read it later. And this is what we meet at. And I want to bring this in because this is significant to understand in the lay of the book. Is the curse was you gonna have to toil, work hard for the rest of your life, and through the sweat of your brow shall you eat. And it's the idea that you only gonna get benefit from this earth through hard work, through wearisome tasks. And it is something that's gonna cause a strain to your existence. And this is where we meet Kohelet that when he asked the question, what is the point to all the labor? What is the benefit of all the labor? That labor is that wearisome work, that toil, that strain, that exhaustion that we put out. And this is the thing that we are met with because of the fall. And so essentially what he's asking here, is there any way to overcome the judgment that God put on man on this earth that casted us into a state of vanity? 
And that's what we're going to try to comprehend. And in verse 4, he started. We're still here in in the prologue and he sets up this journey. He says, one generation passeth away and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to the place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. And unto the place whence the rivers come, thither they return again. And he gives us this beautiful poem about cycles in nature. And this is all supporting of his opening statement, explaining that there is no profit. You cannot gain any advantage. Everything is vanity. And in this opening, he said, the sun arise and it goes back to the place where it started. But the earth, it remains at about, I mean, it opened with one generation. I'm sorry, in verse four, one generation pass and another generation comes. And what he see is a, is a continual progression of humanity. There's an age that comes, and before that age ends, another one begins. And it's this continual progression of humanity, but the earth's still going to be here, is what he's saying. Like, if you can go back, flashback to as far as we can find history in, in, in any true evidence of existence and life on this earth, you know what you find? It was some people, y'all. That's why they have to make up that thing like prehistory. Because everything that we can find in history, it's been people there. <laughs> as far back as they can find, and we get it's been people. And you know what's been happening? For as far back as we can get evidence for, people have been living and people have been dying. And he's saying it seems there seems to be no point. It's just one continuous cycle. People come and people go. I remember the birth of our last child, Yokana. And we were leaving the hospital, and it was this divine moment. God struck me. And it's this, I think that was Yokana. We, we were leaving the hospital, and it was this, this crazy little moment where we was exiting, and you had this joy of a new life coming into the world. And it's exciting. We get to bring the new baby home. And walking out of the emergency room, which was just a couple doors over, the way Baptist South is set up. You come out, they let you out that one little way, but you go down a couple feet. That's the entrance to the emergency room. Was this lady screaming to the top of her lungs? Because her grandfather just died. And there was a moment that just struck me. Like, the, the cycle don't stop. That just a couple doors over, we're in a, in a, in a moment of celebration and anticipation of a new life. While right there next to us coming out, going to her car as a lady in grief and crying in the mourning of the loss of her grandfather, I think it was. And you got the tears of loss right there next to the hope and anticipation of a new life. And it's just this continuous cycle. It doesn't stop. And it's this thing, this journey keep going. And that's the picture that he's given here. And he's setting us up. That you know that life is vanity. Why? Because it's this unending circle. Then he gives us some other examples from nature. In verse 5, it said, The sun ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to the place where he arose. So the sun, it comes up. In our perspective, it rises in the east, sets in the west, just to go back what? To the east. 
and just to go back where? To the west. And it's just this unending cycle. It comes up to go down. And it go down to come right back up again. And there seems to be no end. There's no goal in mind. It just, it's a continuous thing. Then he goes and get a little deeper. Said the wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually and the wind returneth again according to its circuits. Now, this is just a side point. This don't supposed to be in the Bible, y'all. Because understanding wind circuitry, Solomon wasn't supposed to be able to do that. This was before his time and he wasn't in a place where they traveled the great seas and get out on the world in the oceans. But what he's talking about here is it, it, the global trade winds or, or the global circuitry that we discover with wind. And it's the idea that there's a cycle to wind. That when we see our little meteorologists and they're watching the storms and they're showing you the patterns of the highs and the lows, there's a cycle to it. And in the region where he exists on the planet, there's a northerly flow and circuitry to it. Where it comes, it blows, and it gets back towards the, the equator and it turns back up again. And that's this continuous cycle and this continuous movement where he's saying the wind is always moving, but it ain't going nowhere. The sun is always moving, but it doesn't have any goal in mind. And there's this continuous cycle that's saying that life is, is vain. In verse 7, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from which the rivers come, there do they return again. Continuous cycle. And it's another thing that Solomon wasn't supposed to be able to understand, if this Solomon. It's the idea. It's like you got the rivers. The earth is full of rivers and all of them dump out into the sea. But the sea ain't getting no fuller, y'all. Like all this water is continually running into it, but it won't get full. And what he's saying is river waters just run down into the sea, but eventually they make it right back to the rivers from where they came. Now, we understand that because we're in the scientific age. They didn't understand that back in Bible time about the water cycle. But apparently he understood something. And it's just the idea of this continuous cycle. The, the waters keep running, but they ain't going nowhere. They keep rushing down to do something, but their task is not being complete. They fill the seas, but the seas never fill. It's a continuous thing. And this is the point that he's making, that life is, con is filled with movement. Life is filled with motion, but nothing is, seems to be accomplishing anything. It's just this continuous cycle. And this is something that, that amps up the idea of vanity. It's just stuff don't stop. It's always going. And he sums this up in verse 8. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. This is, it's just work. Like your eye will never get to a place where it says, I saw enough today. I got to met my quota. It's like your ears won't ever get to a point where they're satiated by hearing. Like they're never like, okay, like, like a phone message or something. Like cannot receive any more messages. Like your ear will never do that. Never get to a place where you got to clear your ears out. Like, man, I can't hear nothing else. I got to get rid of all that stuff I heard. Uh, no, no, they're not satisfied with hearing. And it's showing you that there's always work going on. They're working. There's vibration. There's movement that's going on. 
but ain't nothing getting done. There's no ultimate goal. It doesn't get anywhere. And this is why he say everything is vanity because everything is full of work. Everything is full of labor, but doesn't nothing seem to accomplish a task. In verse 9, said the thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There is no new thing under the sun. Now this seems to be a strange statement. And it's going around and it's this continuous cycle. Not only is it a continuous cycle, it's a repetitive cycle. That's what he's hearing. He's saying there's no new thing under the sun. As a side point, like I said, I'm a basketball fan and I really like it. Most people grew up wanting to be Michael Jordan. I wanted to be Chuck Daly. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the game. But I was just thinking, if something hit me, see, preparing for the, for the Bible study of the Lord's spoke to Nah, it's just watching basketball. <laughs> but in around about 2001, when I first started on this journey, there was the basketball playoffs. There's two teams in, in the Eastern Conference semifinals. It's Toronto Raptors, and they were playing the Philadelphia 76ers. And they had this star small forward on their team named Vince Carter. And the games were back and forth, and they went to the seventh and final game, and it came down. It was a low-scoring game. It was a grinded-out type of game, and it came down to the last shot. And they gave the ball to their star small forward, and he took a shot in the corner in front of his bench, fading away to win the game. The ball bounced on the rim and bounced out, and they lost. And the Philadelphia Segment Sixers went on to play the Milwaukee Bucks in the conference finals and go to the championship after they beat the Bucks down. Fast forward 19 years later. I was watching basketball, y'all, and it was the Philadelphia 76ers playing against the Toronto Raptors. And Toronto Raptors had a star small forward and it was in this tight game, in game seven, and they threw the ball to their star small forward for the last shot to win the game, and he took a fadeaway shot in front of his bench, and it bounced on the rim, but this time it went in. And they went to go play the Milwaukee Bucks in the conference finals, trashed them to go on to win the championship. 19 years apart, the picture in the scene Pretty much the same. Same picture, same scene, same spot on the floor. Same position of player. Except one with ball head, one had dread. I mean, one got braids. And the idea is, if you see stuff like me like that, that eerie. I'm saying this, this, this is, uh, what, they, what they call it? Deja vu. And what Solomon's telling you, ain't nothing new. <laughs> that all of history repeats itself. And there's this continuous cycle where that which has been is that which will be. And when we think we, we are on the precipice of breaking in and doing something that ain't never been done, then we look back and see that this thing already been did before. We think like, whoa, this is a time like never before, 2020. Y'all, man, we ain't never, this is crazy. And then now we discover back in the early 1900s, we see people at baseball games with a little white mask on their face. Walking around. Carrying dead bodies with masks. Why? Because that which has been is that which shall be. Ain't nothing new under the sun. 
And there's this continuous circle in life. And he's saying this is a part of what makes it vain. Because everything keep going. But don't nothing seem to be getting done. That the same struggle that they were fighting, we still fight. That the same problems they had, we still have them. What is it that we're benefiting? And this is the question they're going to ask. And he's going to amp it up a little bit, y'all, and try to explain this. In verse 10, it says, is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new. It had already been of old time, which was before us. It's like, find something. Any challenge? Is there anything you can say, hey, yeah, this is new? And the idea is that everything is a repeat of something else. And even our new stuff is just a recasting of the same old stuff, y'all. Then he go on in 11, said, There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those things that shall come after. And he said, the thing that makes this cycle so much vain is that we forget. We're not conscious of what has already happened. So we continuously repeat the same cycle because what went on, we don't remember it. And what's going on now, there's going to be a generation that's not going to remember it. That a lot of things that go day by day going to fade out of existence. And you can just even take your own life and just try to flash back to all that you've been through, all the years that you live, all the moments that you've gone through. You only got spots. I guarantee you, we just go back last year. Can none of you recount your whole year? And tell you everything that you did, everything that you went through, everything that you experienced. Just last year. It wouldn't even got to be that deep. We can go last week. (laughs) And there's parts and there's moments that are not conscious to you. You lived it. You experienced it. You were conscious of it. You forgot. And you can't even recall it if you try. Because this idea of a continuous cycle amplified by unconsciousness of what has gone before said this is what increases vanity. And this is one of our first points of, 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 of understanding what does he mean by life being vain. It's a lot of work that's getting done. But nothing is getting accomplished. And everything that is going on, nobody truly remembers. So we end up repeating the same thing. And this is put life in this spiral for him. And this is the end. Like I said, we meet it. This is the conclusion. And it's like the climactic part of the book where we hit the story. And now we finna meet where it go back. And at the bottom of your screen, now it's saying, six months earlier. And we meet Kohelet and we enter into his journey in his journal for us. In verse 12, and he tells us a little more about himself. And now he begins to speak in the first person. He says, I, the preacher, I, Kohelet, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So not only was he king over Israel, not only was he son of David, so he was king in Jerusalem. Let me see how many Bible scholars I got in here. How many people were king over Israel in Jerusalem? Anybody know? Two? Oh, got one. You sure? It's David and Solomon. That's it. Saul wasn't king over Israel in Jerusalem. Saul was king in the Benjamite place. 
David moved the capital to Jerusalem. Yo, that's it. We only got two. And every other king that was in Jerusalem, one king over all of Israel, they was just king over Judah. Because after Solomon, the kingdom split. Well, this is another sign that chances are this might be Solomon speaking. And a lot of people are going to ask you, why in the world would he, one, speak of himself in the third person, and two, use this made-up name? Why he won't just Solomon? That'll give more credence to the book if you just say, hey, I'm Solomon. Now they ask. And it's like, that don't seem to make no sense. Like, do people talk of themselves in the third person? Y'all ever met anybody like that? You do that sometimes? Okay. Yeah. Do people just make up names and go by them? And talk of themselves as that name? Like, do people do that? Like, I had a brother that did that. My brother was slick aunt. <laughs> and he would refer to himself as slick aunt. <laughs> or just slick for short. <laughs> like, dude, how you name yourself? Then you call yourself your name. This is not an anomaly in history. <laughs> but some people can't seem to fathom. See, maybe it's the ethnicity. They don't come from that type of world. Well, people that make up names and call themselves those names and go by them names in the third person. So that's why a lot of people nowadays want to fight and say, well, Solomon didn't write this because Solomon would have just said, I'm Solomon. And so it had to be somebody else. I want, he, he spoke in third person. Like, people don't do that. People do that all the time. People do it in real life and especially when you're writing. It's a stylistic thing that amplifies the view. And we see this whole thing in this prologue, just like on the movies, they, they tell you, this is what we're going on, then they go back, and now you into the story. And you lose the narrator, but you witness it. And that's what we got going on right here. So I, the preacher, was king over Israel and all Jerusalem. Verse 13, he's expounding. This is what he did, y'all. This is the journey. I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. So this is what he set out to do. I want to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. So all the activities that take place on earth, he wanted to find them out. He, he went on this investigation to understand, to know the depths of everything that takes place on this planet. That seems to be a big endeavor. Like everything that go on down here, I, I, I searched it out. I saw it. This is what I was trying to do. And he's saying, and he under, and he underscores this and he defines this and said, this sore travail, this evil thing, this evil toil, this evil work, this wearisome task is another way that sore travail could be translated. Said this wearisome task has God given to the sons of man. So this work, this toil is something that I didn't just throw on myself. It's something God has given to the sons of man to be exercised or to be trained or to be disciplined therewith, to be restricted therewith. So he, he's putting and he's putting us in a position where God has done something to make life toilsome, to make life hard, to make life heavy. And then as the result that he gets sent on this task and that this, I think it refers to this, this journey of searching, this journey of seeking out and not necessarily the works themselves. 
So the task of trying to grasp, the task of trying to understand the things that go on on this planet, like this is a sore travail, this is an evil, this is this is a wearisome task that God has given to us. And like I said, we see pictures of it in our own life. That as we sit back and reflect, we try to understand. And we look for meaning in all of our activities. Like None of us just want to be wasting our time. Be like, you know what I'm saying? Like one of the things that gets you popped in the mouth growing up, one of the questions that you ask when mama asks you to do something or tell you to do something, you want to understand what? Like, why are you? Why are you? Why I got to? Mama, you already in there. Why are you calling me? See, that gets you knocked in the mouth. <laughs> mama be in the refrigerator. Come give me some water. <laughs> and the question that'll get your head knocked off is, what you have me to do that for? See, I gotta get you killed. And what he's saying is, this is the question that God has burdened us with. That there's tasks, there's work that does not seem to have a point. And trying to understand this or get meaning out of it, this is the thing that God burdened us with. And so this is what he set out on this great journey. Verse 14, he said, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. So I have seen, I can recognize everything that go on on this planet. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. So not only did he got everything vanity, but we got this other key phrase, vexation of spirit. Now that word, that, or that phrase means to grab hold to the wind. So everything is emptyless, meaningless, deceptive, fleeting, and it's like grabbing hold to the wind. Now how many of y'all done that right now on the, the, the highway? I'm saying when you ride with folks ain't got no out, you put your hand out there and be about to blow your arm back. Then you close your fist and immediately all the pressure just stop and you have nothing in your hand. Uh, you see steam or something come up, the breath out your mouth and you try. This is what, this is the idea that he got here. That <clears throat> when he said vexation of spirit is like grabbing the wind. So just imagine somebody chasing the wind down and trying to grab it. Like that's what all of this work is. That's done under the sun. So everything a man do. Just think about that. That's what he's saying. Everything a man do under the sun. On this earth. Is a fleeting activity. That's like running out there. Trying to catch the wind. That don't seem fun. 15. He goes on to explain it. He said that which is crooked. It cannot be made straight. And that which is warning. Cannot be numbered. So the crooked stuff. Can't be stressed out. And the idea here is it's something that God has subjected to be that way. So God then twisted some things up and he's saying, nothing you can do about it. God then left some things lacking. There's some things missing in this life and missing on this planet. It's like, ain't nothing you, you, it cannot be counted. It can't be numbered again. It cannot be multiplied. Zero times any number equals what? Zero. That's what you get. And he's saying God left some things to be zero. And ain't nothing we can do to multiply. There ain't nothing we can do to count them up. God twisted them and messed some things up. And ain't nothing we can do to straighten them out. Verse 16. I commune with my own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate. I have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. This is Kohelet talk. And in that opening phrase, we're going to see in a different time. I, when I commune with my own heart, a, 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 a rough way of saying that is I say it with my mind. I say it with my own mind. And this is idea of him talking to himself, of him meditating, thinking about his activities. And this is what he said. 
I come to great estate. That means I can reach the level in life where I got a lot of stuff. I'm a very successful man. See, and I got more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. So everybody who's been before me in Jerusalem, I'm more wise than any of them. That's a bold statement. And it seems to match up with Solomon according to 1 Kings chapter 4. Like everybody who came before me, I got more wisdom than all of them. So I'm rich and I'm wise. So my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So I didn't experience, I didn't dealt with, I didn't live some life and it's been a great it's been an expansive experience of wisdom and knowledge. I didn't, I can learn a lot of things. I'd have been through a lot of things and I'd learn how to navigate them properly and I'd experience them. I truly understand them as wisdom and knowledge. I grasp them and I understand them. In 17 saying, I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I pursued that this also is vexation of spirit. So that I devoted myself to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. Now, another way, if you got some of the newer versions, the way this could be translated is I gave myself to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. That second know a lot of people put off as a noun to itself instead of connecting it to the other two phrases. When you say, I gave myself to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. And here he got this, this opposition going on. And basically, I tried to understand both sides of the spectrum. So wisdom and knowledge is... Close and synonymous. That's the understanding of what is and how it is to properly be used. And madness and folly is being insane and being foolish. Like I gave myself to know both of them. That which is insane, that which is foolish, foolish, that which is wise, and that which is according to knowledge. I tried to understand both sides of the spectrum. Do this seem like a good thing to do? Like I just went all the way in. I wanted to understand all of it. I ain't just want to understand wisdom. I want to understand madness. I want to know what it's like to be insane. I want to know what it's like to be foolish. I try to get all of it. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> and it said, I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. So once I went into this journey, trying to get knowledge, in wisdom, trying to understand madness and folly. He said, I perceive that this is chasing after the wind. I perceive that this is eating a, a bowl full of fog, consuming myself on vapors. Nothing. Like, this is what I understand. On this journey, there ain't no point to it. It gets me nowhere. In 18, he explains, said, for in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increases knowledge, increases sorrow. So in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increases knowledge, increases sorrow. He said, that's why this vanity and vexation of spirit. And not just because to be mad is mad. I expected that. And to be foolish is something that, that, that can ruin you. But it's because wisdom and knowledge, the things that I thought could get me some, it's like they increase grief. And knowledge increase sorrow. And it's the picture here of the more you know, the more life hurts. And that the increase of knowledge puts you in a position where you understand better. How many of you just, that because of your, your change and, 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 and you got your mind illuminated and you know Christ and you know the way life's supposed to be and you go back and you might partake of some of the stuff that you thought. I listened to some of the music or 
watch some of the movies that you thought were fun and enjoyable. And you'd be like, man, why the world I used to watch this junk? And it just ruined the whole thing. Like, you, you can't appreciate it at all. As a matter of fact, it's sickening. Like, oh. And it's like, that's, that's what knowledge do. It creates grief. It creates sorrow. When you understand the plight of the world and what's going on in the world and all the chaos, when you know, it makes it hurt a little bit. And he's saying, the more I increase knowledge, the more I increase wisdom, the more grief and the more sorrow I got. And this is a real aspect of growing. Like I said, most of you, once you got saved and God opened up your eyes and you understand hell and the destruction and the judgment to come, one of the first things that go on your mind is what about? Mama near, auntie near, brother, sister, cousin, and it creates this grief. And you start to think about my, my, my granny who, who passed away and you're trying to imagine what is she doing? What's going on with her? And it put everything in a whole nother perspective. That's why the whole world, oh, we just lost this great person and we celebrating that you sitting there. Man, I wonder, did he get, did he get right? Like, God. And there's this heaviness that comes because you know better. And it's like, this is the outcome that makes this whole thing vanity and vexation of spirit. Like, dog, I'm chasing after the wind. Ain't nothing to be gained here because getting knowledge, I only got sorrow. Getting wisdom, I only got grief. Madness and folly, he bring them back up later. Let's try to push through a couple more in chapter 2. Said, I said in my heart, same expression, I, I said with my mind, I, I, I talked with my mind, go to now, I will approve thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure and behold, this also is vanity. So he turned. He not only just examining wisdom now, that's what he examined earlier, now he's examined mirth, which is laughter, a joy, Something that, 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 that brings happiness into your life. Like I, I would prove we would mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure. And that's sensuality. Enjoy the stuff that makes you feel good. So in this turn, he turn into stuff that makes you happy and make you feel good. Cause that's what life all about, ain't it? Pursuit of happiness. And that's what he said. This is what I gave myself. So he went on the pursuit of happiness. And this is what he got in verse two. I said of laughter. It is mad. In a mirth, what do with it? When they got laughter, that's just, that's just silliness. It's just, just having fun. It's like, it's mad. It's crazy. That, 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 like, that, that's something, it, it don't make sense. Then it, of mirth, that happiness, that joy, that, that celebration, that festive attitude, like what does it do? Like when, it, when it's all said done, what's accomplished? Like when you go out and have a good time and you go to a party, how long does the good from the party last? The duration of the party. <laughs> How long does you last? The duration of your existence. <laughs> Which is longer than the party. Now, if there was some way for us to have a life full with festivities that can last just as long as us, maybe party might be okay. But what he said is, it's mad, it's nothing. It doesn't do anything. What does it accomplish? What happens because of mirth and because of laughter? You get a momentary of feeling good. Then it's over with. In verse 3, so I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine. All right. He, he tried to turn up, y'all. He sought to give himself unto wine 
yet acquainting my heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of man was they should do under heaven all the days of their life. So we turn. He had party, had festivity. He went to the, all the comedy shows. Now he said, I turned to wine. He started to turn up. And he's like, I gave myself to wine, yet acquainted my heart with wisdom. What he mean by that is I indulged in wine and was trying to understand what was going on. So he tried to keep his mind in indulging wine at the same time. So a lot of people, when they think that this is Solomon, because it's a biblical book, and we know that drunkenness is what? It's a sin. We can't debate upon that. So they don't tell you, well, he didn't really get drunk. See, he was a wine taster, and he traveled all over the world getting getting wine and just want to see what it's like, the, the different thing. I don't think that's what he was talking about. I think Solomon, the writer Kohelet here, was actually getting slizzled and trying to understand, like, what's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the benefit? That he was actually doing it in and trying to see, like, what, what do I get from this? So he was trying to keep wisdom and get drunk at the same time. What seems to be an impossible task. And he said he tried to lay hold on folly till he might see what was good for the sons of man. And so he went in this task and his purpose for going into this task was that he wanted to see what was good. It's another key word. He latch on to that. What was good. What was told. That thing which was beneficial, pleasant, pleasing, functioning in the way that it's supposed to function. Like how life was supposed to be lived. This is what he tried to understand. So we wanted, to, we're trying to understand what's the advantage of our activities and how life is to truly supposed to be lived. What is it in life that can truly benefit us? What is it in life that's truly worthwhile that can bring to us something worthwhile? And he said, I, I went to wine, I went to folly, and I tried to maintain and understand this so I can know what men should do under the heaven all the days of their life. So what men are supposed to do on this planet, this is what I tried to understand. So he got wisdom, he madness, went insane, folly, he got drunk, he threw parties, trying to understand what's worthwhile. And how many of us would think that this is something beneficial for us to understand? Like, we need to know what, what is what we should be doing on this earth. What's worth our time and what's worth our attention? And here we got somebody who went on a journey for us. And he said, I tried it all, y'all. Trying to figure out what needs to be done. In verse 4, he turned into activities of greatness now. He said, I made me great works. I built me houses. I planted me vineyards. So he did great works. He did. He, he accomplished big, big things. He said, I built me houses. I planted vineyards. So he, he just built up all type of empires, big mansions and Castles. He built the temple. So he planted vineyards. So he made uh, gardens and all that type of stuff. So I made me gardens and orchards and I planted trees in them of all kinds. So he was an architect. He was a construction worker. Did it all. Then he turned down and tried to be like Butte and became a landscaper. He started planting gardens and, and planting orchards and trees. So he built this thing up, a great thing to say to show the vastness of his wealth and the vastness of his power to accomplish something. He was a real estate mogul, y'all. Dude did it up. It's like trying to see what is worthwhile. How I many of y'all think that's something cool to do? I'm saying own property. Build great buildings. Have your name all over stuff. He's like, I did that. Then he go on. In verse 6, I made me pools of water to water that with the wood that bringeth forth trees. 
So this joker got down in science and irrigation. And so he made them great pools. Even to this day, the pools of Solomon, you can still find through archaeological digs, the great baths and the pools that he created and that he built to, to create a system of irrigation. Like I did, I was building it up. I made a whole city. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. So I, I, I increased. You know what I'm saying I got worker people working for me. I'm saying people putting in all that stuff. He he got a great empire. He was a CEO. So I also had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. So he 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 was prosperous. Great cattle, small cattle, he had it all. So there was nothing that he wanted that he did not have. And he went on all these tasks that people try to do. So he got possessions, he built buildings, built gardens. He became, a, 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 like I said, a CEO. He, he, he gave people jobs. He said, I got me maid servants and men servants. He said, so was I great. Oh, in verse 8. So I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasures of kings. So the little special things that, that only kings can get their hands on. I got that. I got silver and gold. All these things. So he went on a journey accumulating stuff. Dude was wealthy. To the point where he can say, I got it more than everybody that was before me in Jerusalem. He claimed to be the son of David. David was a wealthy man. Y'all. It's like I, I beat him. I did it. I did it. Everyone, everything everybody wanted to do, I did it. Say so In procuring treasures of kings and other provinces, I got me men singers and women singers. So he, he, he put together a choir, got a band struck up. It said, and the delights of the sons of men. Now this is a strange verse that a lot of people are ashamed of. So they, they, they fixed the translation there a little bit. If you're reading King James, it says, I got me the, and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So he got the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments. Now that don't mean to make no sense. How do you get delights as musical instruments? Cause that's not what it says there in, in the Hebrew. He's saying he got him the delights of the sons of men, women, lots of women. And here it's turned to a, a somewhat of a sexual thing. And like I said, I think the people are a little bit ashamed to put that in the Bible. So what he's saying is, he built a choir. He got great wealth. And he's just starting to get pleasure from women. Not women, lots of women. All kinds. <laughs> All kinds. And if like, this is fitting with Solomon. Because he married women from just about everywhere. All the regions around. And what he's saying, I was trying them off. Short, fat, Canaanite, Hittite, <laughs> Peruvian. He pulling them off, bringing them off ships. So everything that people try to do to bring significance to their life, he said he did it. So all the pleasures that we indulged in, he's saying he indulged in it. So I was great in verse 9 and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. So throughout this whole time I had my wisdom working. And like I said, here he utilized wisdom as a tool for understanding a task. So all this time I had the ability to grasp and to understand what I was doing and what was going on. I can see it. And how many of you can think of a pleasure 
that he missed out on. Okay. Because he said, I tried it all. Everything that made people feel good, I, I, I didn't try it. And what's his conclusion? Oh, in verse 10, he kept going and said, and whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. So whatever I saw and I wanted, I ain't hold nothing back. I withheld not from my heart any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Now we get a little, a slight sliver here. He give us a sliver of hope there. It's like I didn't hold anything back from anything I saw that I wanted, I went and got it. In anything my heart desired, I indulged in it. Then he says that my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. So there was a moment in this journey, in what I'm doing, where there was some rejoicing that went on inside of me. I, I enjoyed what I did. Like this was my portion. This was what I got from it. This was the little piece that I was able to glean and hold on to myself for all my actions. So when I build my great buildings, there was a time when he looked back and, and he appreciated what he did. When he was out there indulging and getting these women of all sorts, when he built this great choir and got a, got a choir, y'all, the same to him. We got, we got to buy radios and stuff like that. He got it. Same. <laughs> it's like when I had all this, there, there was a piece of joy that I got. My heart rejoiced in it. It's like that's all I got from it. A, a moment of enjoyment, a moment of rejoicing, a moment of excitement. That's all I gleaned from all these activities. And then we get to closing here. Said, so then I looked on all the works that my hands have wrought, and on the labor that I have labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun. It's like I look back on all that stuff. I look back on my experience and wisdom. I look back on my getting drunk and, and just enjoying festivities, going to comedy shows, building great buildings. Everything, getting all these different women, getting all these different riches, excelling, being greater than anybody that lived in my whole nation before me. Like that deep. He don't say, man, I was the man in my city back in my day, in my hood. Like I was the man in my nation. <laughs> Not only in my day, in every day that happened before me. By the time I made it, there was nobody like me. Then he said, I look back on all this stuff. And the only thing I got from it was a momentary peace of, of enjoyment. A momentary time just to rejoice. And then I said, out of all the labor, all the toil, all the work that do it, behold, everything is vanity and vexation of spirit. There is no profit. There's nothing that's truly beneficial. There's nothing that's worthwhile. There's nothing that, that brings an abundance. There's nothing that equals the task that you put out as a good reward. Ain't no profit. Under the sun, there is none. And he was saying, on all the earth, all our work, all our toil, there's nothing that our work, our toil can bring back to us. That's the equivalent of it. When we're looking at life under the sun. And uh, that picture of under the sun is just right here on this planet. It's all he's thinking about. And the strange thing we're going to meet and we'll expound on it more as we go forward in the book. Is this one of the few books where the personal name of God does not show up. Now we just left Proverbs and Yahweh was all throughout that thing. 
the Lord, as they say. But here it does not show up. Not once in the whole book. And it's because, like I said, we'll get into it later. We'll pause right there. But this work, this thing, like I didn't get anything. And what we're going to try to do for the rest of this book is figure out the answer to Solomon's question. What is it that we can do that's worthwhile? What is it that we can do that give a reward that's equal to the labor that we put out? Is there any true profit under the sun? Anybody got any questions?